The Macro View, episode 39. Welcome, everybody, to uh, part three of this series. So I think we're going to be able to cover everything we want here tonight. So first off, we're going to cover the rest of the discussion from last night's episode that we didn't get to. So we discussed valuation ratios, and I brought up the point that I prefer to use when analyzing an equity investment, an investment in a publicly traded company stock, that is, the peg ratio or the price to earnings to growth ratio and the price to book value in sort of a combination. I briefly discussed why, but I did not discuss when and what limitations of such are. And I want to finish that discussion really quickly tonight. So first, when you use these measures, you know, this is a screen that you would use. You you use this to help find a group of companies that are trading at a good valuation. But, but it is really nothing more than that. So you also need to make qualitative judgments about the company that you're going to invest in once you've boiled it down to that screen. Now we've got a couple in a couple of episodes uh, coming up, but following the next three episodes, the fourth episode from now, we're going to be discussing a great advancement in private governance a private for-profit driven transparency movement that will help you to make some, not all, but some of those qualitative judgments much easier, much more efficiently, and much more accurately. So that'll be the topic of the show coming up in four episodes from now, so you'll definitely want to catch that. Tonight, we're going to discuss debt risk evaluation and concepts regarding the evaluation of debt securities. So we already discussed the future and the present value on the first part of this series. So tonight we're going to be discussing the risk side of debt securities. So that means the probability or risk of default, the recovery rate, and the loss given default. Now these three concepts build upon each other, and we're going to use examples. I'll be posting those examples on tonight's show page which is the first post you'll find upon arriving at macroviewnews.com. Now, within these examples we give, we're going to discuss some of the nuances behind these measures. There are some disclosures that need to be understood when when considering how and when to use these concepts and what their shortcomings are, as well as the effectiveness of the measures during certain events, certain market events. So we're going to dive right into all of this right after this quick message. All right, folks, so I know most, if not all, of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist straw men. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought, if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as An Introduction to Logic, The History of Economic Thought, Austrian Economics Step-by-Step, John Maynard Keynes' System and Its Fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western Civilization History courses, 
Freedom's Progress, The History of Political Thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. Okay, so what is the probability or risk of default? Essentially, the probability or risk of default is an assessment of the likelihood based on the characteristics of a debt security that it will enter into bankruptcy or that it will be defaulted upon just as the name kind of implies. So you calculate the probability of default by dividing the spread of an instrument's yield as compared to a domestic government bond. So in the U.S., that would be a treasury bond of the same or as close to the same as possible maturity. So you divide that spread by one minus the recovery rate. Now, this is the most simple way to calculate probability of default, but there are numerous caveats that need to be made. So A, this does not work well at all when dealing with credit instruments that are already in distress, which means, well, you should know what it means because we discussed it in part four of our five-part series on the fundamentals of financial markets. So if you didn't catch that, go back, listen to that episode. It's episode 30, uh, 31. So go back and catch episode 31 if you missed that. But I'll refresh your memory. In distress means that bankruptcy is, is imminent without significant capital infusion or has already begun. So this also does not measure default intensity. And default intensity is essentially a, a measure that helps you to understand uh, sort of when and how serious the default is going to be. It also will help you to measure uh, the recovery rate, it helps you to kind of figure out what a, a, a better measure of a recovery rate for an individual security would be. And it gives you, a, as the name implies, it gives you the intensity of the default. So it'll give you a little bit more information. There are better measures now that have come about due to the wide use of credit default swaps. For some companies or for some debt instruments in general, there are no credit default swap markets though. So while many of the biggest names in the market and most pools of mortgages do have credit default swaps. There are companies that do not. So also all measures of probability of default are approximations that are used to help assess the risk of a credit instrument. They are not foolproof and will not give you an exact likelihood of default. They could underestimate or overestimate the risk. They, there are not only qualitative factors involved, but there are, an immeasurable number of human action factors involved in the success or failure of a debt security investment. Now, with that said, if a company or instrument does have a CDS, you can use another formula that I'll put on tonight's show page. However, it's a little bit more complex. It's still imperfect. It is a bit more accurate, partially because a lot more information and the knowledge of many entrepreneurs that specialize in a market that prices default risk constantly or adding their inputs in way of the price or supply and demand. Um, in terms of the CDS, it would be through the spread of the CDS, which is a term that I'll define a little bit more. Uh, I'll define in a little bit more detail on tonight's show page. So again, the probability of default, sticking with the most simplified solution, is the bond spread to a treasury of similar maturity divided by one minus the recovery rate. So let's use 
the high quality bond index, quote unquote, high quality bond index, the Federal Reserve's high quality bond index for bonds with a 10 year term. So as of December, the yield on this index was 3.7%. Now, as of December, the yield on a 10 year treasury was 2.45%. Now, this means that the spread was 125 basis points or 1.25%. Now, for the sake of example, let's use a dire straits type of scenario. So the 2009 recovery rate, which is one of the, the lowest um, lowest recovery rates, one of the worst years on record. And for Moody's corporate rate, Moody's rated corporate bonds, the recovery rate was 37.1% overall. So this means that the probability of default is 0.0125 or 1.25% divided by 1 minus 0.371 or 37.1%. That would equal 1.987% or if we round it about 2%. Now this means even in a dire scenario like 2009 on investment grade or high quality corporate bonds, you could expect about a 2% probability of default. So the question is, how does that measure up to reality? Well, in reality, among all investment grade bonds in 2009, about 2.38% defaulted. However, 111 basis points of that, or roughly 47% of the 2.38% that did default, were the lowest investment grade rating. So if you're using S&P ratings, that would be a tri uh, triple B minus. And for, for Moody's ratings, it would be a BAA3 rating. So that means that excluding the lowest grade of investment grade bonds, only 1.27% of issues actually defaulted in 2009. So what about 2008, which is one of the few years on record worse than 2009? And it's, it's actually probably the worst year on record for investment grade defaults, maybe 1929 was a little bit worse. But in 2008, you even had AA ratings, which is the third highest rating of an issue that an issue can receive. You had AA ratings that went into default. Well, in March of 2008, using the same two uh, bond indexes, excuse me, you had a 6.01% corporate yield and treasury yields were 3.45%. So the spread was 256 basis points. The recovery rate at that time, because nothing major had happened yet, would have been expected by most analysts. And if you're doing an analysis, unless you were really foresightful and you really, you know, dug into uh, some of the uh, some of the the mortgage bonds that were being held in some of the subprime securities, but even then, we're talking about default rates on. Uh, investment grade bonds, so not not subprime. These would be prime, high quality, you know, triple A to B double A rated. So, the recovery rate traditionally, historically, for senior secured bonds that were investment grade, what is about forty nine point one percent. So you would divide the two hundred fifty six basis point spread, or point zero two five six, or two point five six percent, by one minus. 0.491. So, and the answer you would get is about 5.02% probability of default. Now, how did that measure up against reality? 
Well, in reality, investment-grade corporate bonds experienced a 3.47% default rate. So about 3.5% of investment-grade corporate bonds defaulted in the year 2008. So in the case of March 2008, if you're looking to make an investment in an investment-grade corporate bond, you would have possibly, using this formula, overestimated the default risk by about 150 basis points. So now that we, uh, that we understand how that works, what about the recovery rate? Well, unless you want me to really get deep into modeling the distribution of bankrupted assets, which we did a little bit, we talked a little bit about, we glossed, I wouldn't say we glossed over it, we went into pretty good detail about the capital structure and what happens in the event of bankruptcy and restructuring versus liquidation back on episode 31. I'll post that on the show notes page so you can get a little bit better idea of how you might go about calculating this number. But essentially, unless we want to get into modeling the distribution of bankrupted assets, the best way to estimate the recovery rate is to use a historical number like we did for the 2008 scenario. Now, the more conservative, the better. You know, always err on the side of caution. The recovery rate is vital for the calculation of probability of default and loss given default, which is what we're going to talk about in coming up in just a little bit but it can be very difficult to figure out. In a simple scenario where a company whose bond you're considering buying has a single issue of bonds, it's much simpler. Just figure out the value of the assets on the company's balance sheet, discount it by a reasonable and conservative rate to adjust for asset value declines in the event of an economic downturn, and then determine what percentage of the assets will be able to be paid back if the to the bond holders after subtracting short-term liabilities or current liabilities, such as accounts payable from the asset, short-term debt, etc., you want to get rid of that and then figure out what's left over. Now, again, these are not perfect measures. You can come closer if you understand the concept of default intensity uh, and or the likely timing of a default, which are both imperfect measures as well. For the purpose of tonight's episode, though, we're going to stick to simple. Um, and I've always found that that getting really deep into quantitative, it can be somewhat of a futile effort because in the worst case scenarios, the only way to really manage your risk is to hedge your risk and to use uh, to use things like options and to use credit default swaps if you're buying bonds. But a lot of these measures might help you to, to decide how much to pay to cover your risk, right? So it'll help you to decide what's the value to me, you know, given... The probability of default and the lo- the loss of default and what, or the loss given default, which we're going to discuss in just a little bit, you'll be able to come up with a better idea of what you'd be willing to pay in order to hedge some of that risk. So we've got one more debt co- uh, risk concept to discuss tonight. That's loss given default. It's pretty simple. And we will explain the loss given default right after this quick message. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods' master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. 
Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Bootcamp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. All right, we are back. So loss given default is the expected loss of if a company whose bond you hold goes into bankruptcy. Now, the way you find loss given default is you multiply one minus the recovery rate by your gross exposure. So let's use an example to highlight this. So let's say the recovery rate is 50% and the total exposure is 10,000. $10,000. The loss given default is 1 minus 0.5, which equals 0.5 times $10,000 or $5,000 would be your loss given default. Then to express that as a percentage, you just say that the loss given default is $5,000 divided by $10,000 or 50%, right? So in the event of a 50% recovery rate, your loss given default is 50%. So that's a very simple formula. Now, if you've held the bond for a little while, you've gotten paid back, you know, your loss given default is still the gross exposure, what you currently have, whatever your gross exposure is times the one minus the recovery rate. However, you're not losing your full principal investment because you've already recovered a little bit. So it's, again, it's a very simple formula. If you can model the recovery rate properly, just as a calculation, uh, you know, just as calculating the probability of default is not that difficult if you can model recovery rate accurately. Now, I did promise everybody that we are going to discuss where you can find certain light items on a company's balance sheet and their income statement and the cash flow. So we're going to close out with that now. So let's start with the balance sheet. Now I'm going to use Apple because Apple's a popular company. Everybody knows Apple. So using Apple's balance sheet, a screenshot of which you can find on tonight's show page, you'll notice there's about 30 line items on Apple's balance sheet. So in the very top, you have current assets. This is uh, the first line item you'll see there is cash and cash equivalents followed by short-term investments, net receivables, inventory, and other current assets. Then below other current assets, you have the total current assets. The total current assets are just the sum to value of all the current assets. Then you have long-term assets. So under long-term assets, you have long-term investments, fixed assets, goodwill, intangible assets, and other assets, as well as deferred asset charges. And then after that, you have total assets. Um, so, And obviously, total assets are just the, the sum to value of current and long-term assets. Now, really quickly, when determining the recovery rate for a single issue company, that, that is a company with a single bond issuance, you want to eliminate goodwill and intangible assets from the equation. You want to subtract them, that is. Assume that they're worth nothing in the event of a bankruptcy. So then after total assets, you have current liabilities. Now under current liabilities, you have accounts payable, 
short-term debt and the current portion owed of long-term debt. That is the current portion owed of long-term debt is over the next 12 months. And you have other current liabilities. So the sum of all of that is added up to get total current liabilities. Now in the recovery rate cal calculation, you want to subtract current liabilities from assets first. And again, that's for a single issuance uh, company. If there's multiple issues, it gets a little bit more complicated. Multiple issues means that there's multiple bond issuances. So there's maybe a three-year bond issuance, a five-year bond issuance, a 10-year bond issuance, or maybe a senior secured bond, a senior unsecured bond, a subordinate, subordinate uh, unsecured bond, and then a junior bond, etc. You've got to really figure that out. So then you have long-term debt, which does not include the current position, and you have other liabilities and deferred liability charges. And then, then you have miscellaneous stocks and minority interests. Now you add these up and combine them with total current liabilities to get total liabilities, which is the next line item. And then you have stockholder equity. So stockholder equity consists of common stocks, retained earnings, capital surplus, treasury, treasury st stock, and other equity. Now, the sum of all of those gives you the total equity. And you combine total equity and total liabilities, and you get total liabilities and equity. Now, total liabilities and equity must add up to total assets. They have to balance, in other words. That's why it's called a balance sheet. Now, shareholder equity, or total equity in other words, is the book value. So for example, sticking with Apple, which had a closing price today on February 7th of $131.53 per share, and has a book value per share, which is the book value divided by the shares outstanding, of $25.18, Apple has a price to book ratio of 5.22, which is pretty pretty high. So that means you're paying $5.22 for every $1 in assets. So then we have income statements. Income statements, you'll find, um, you'll often hear financial professionals and financial news pundits talk about them in terms of lines. So they'll say top line or bottom line when referring to revenue or net earnings respectively. So for Apple, you have total revenue at the top line, then you have the cost of revenue. You subtract cost of revenue from total revenue, you arrive at gross profit. Then under operating expenses, you have research and development. Um, you have, so, uh, excuse me, under operating expenses, which comes underneath the gross profit, you have research and development, sales, general and administration costs. And then for, this is just for Apple's particular balance sheet. And if you go in, you can actually read into deeper line items and see what parts are increasing and, and decreasing. This is just sort of a standard balance sheet. You also have non-recurring items and other operating items. So you subtract the, the sum of operating expenses from the gross profit, and that gives you operating income. Then you have additional income and expense lines, and then you have earnings before interest and taxes. Then you have interest expense, and you subtract interest expense from, from EBIT, or earning before uh, earnings before interest and taxes, and... Then you get earnings before taxes. You subtract, um, you subtract taxes, and you then you have minority interest and you have equity earnings or loss on unconsolidated 
subsidiary companies. So you subtract the income tax, minority interest, and any losses or add any earnings from subsidiaries, from unconsolidated subsidiaries, and voila, you get net income from continuing operations. Now, some companies will have additional line items after net income from continuing operations. Apple does not. So their net income from continuing operations is their net income and is their net income applicable to shareholders, the latter of which is earnings. Now to figure out price to earnings, you divide earnings or the bottom line by the number of shares outstanding and you end up with the earnings per share. You then divide the price by the earnings per share. So in, the, in the Apple's case, at the end of the current day, at the end of today's trading session, which is February 7th, 2017, for those of you listening, catching up later, the PE ratio is 15.7. So I mentioned earlier the PEG ratio, which I prefer. So how do you get the PEG ratio? So in order to determine the PEG ratio, you need to determine the growth in earnings for Apple. Now the three-year average growth rate of Apple's earnings is 9.133%. This means the PEG ratio is 15.7 divided by 9.133, which equals 1.72 approximately. Now, this is a pretty strong PEG ratio. It's pretty low for such a well-known company and a highly desired company. A PEG ratio closer to one is even better. And if you can find a, a company with a PEG ratio under one, that's even better. It's a really good deal. However, again, you must be careful to make judgments purely on these ratios. They can change quickly due to results of the company and due to consumer fickleness and switching loyal, you know, changing the, their loyalty to new, new uh, competitors. So you must evaluate the qualitative factors, which is a little bit more difficult to do and takes a little bit more uh, time to do. And you got to get to know the company. You got to figure out what the company does. Why is it that people really like them? Why are they loyal to them? Is there anything that's particularly unique about this company? Are they in an industry with really high barriers to entry that prevents competition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of qualitative factors that have to uh, be judged before you jump into making an investment. Now, really quickly, I do want to run through cash flow statements. So the top line of a cash flow statement is earnings or the net income, which is the bottom line on an income statement. And then you have cash flows from operating activities, which include depreciation and net income adjustments. Then you have changes in operating activities, which include accounts receivable, changes in inventory, and other operating activities and liabilities. Now remember, accounts receivable growing is good, inventories growing is bad, typically. Liabilities declining can be good or bad, really depends on the rest of the company's financial situation, but typically liabilities declining if income and asset values are growing is a good thing. So you then sum the net income with the rest of the line items and you get net cash flow from operating activities. Then you have net cash flow from investing activities. So for an operating company like Apple, you have uh, capital expenditures, investments, and other investment activities. These for an operating company like Apple, that's not an investment company, um, and, and one that's still continuing to try to grow and innovate, these are typically going to be negative. So you sum these together to get net cash flow from investing. Then lastly, you have cash flow from financing activities. You first have sales and purchases of stock. Apple has been buying back a significant amount of its outstanding shares, and thus they have a negative cash flow from sales and purchases of stock. Then you have 
net borrowings. Apple has been borrowing to buy back their stock. So you have a positive line item there. And then you have other financing activities. Now you add all these together to get net cash flow from financing. You then sum the net cash flow from operations, investing, and financing to get the net cash flow. Now in Apple's case, their net cash flow was negative 363 million in the, the year 2016 from uh, September of 2015 to, to the end of September of 2016. So I guess from the beginning of October 2015 to the end of September 2016. Now that was mostly attributed to investing expenditures and stock buybacks. So like I said, a company like Apple that's an operating company, if they also are doing stock buybacks, you're likely to end up with not every year, but you'll probably have a couple of years while they're buying back their stock and while they're making investments in innovation and research and development and trying to grow, building new plants, whatever the case may be, where they do have a negative cash flow. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. You've got to look at all the other factors. Well, everybody, I think that's going to do it for tonight. I hope you enjoyed and I hope you learned something from tonight's episode. Do not forget to tune in tomorrow night for the final part of this four-part series on valuing an investment. Tomorrow night, we're going to be discussing volatility, value at risk, time horizon risk, and other equity risk concepts and measures that you may want to use to account for additional factors in investing. Now, don't forget, if you're not already listening to tonight's show, from the show page at macroviewnews.com, go and check it out. So that way you can see the formulas that I'm discussing and you can also see a copy of Apple's balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow. I'll be screen posting screenshots of Apple's balance sheet, income statement, and cash flow, both the annual and quarterly versions there on the show page. I'll also be posting a whole host of resources so that any of my listeners can go and delve deeper into each of these topics. And also, also while you're there, do not forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find our links to uh, both profiles at the bottom of the website at macroviewnews.com and also sign up for our email list. That way you'll be notified when new episodes are released and you'll never miss an episode of the macro view. And last, but most importantly, do not forget to share us with your friends and your family, with your social media networks, wherever you feel as though it's appropriate and help me to spread the logic of liberty. Don't forget to tune back in tomorrow. Take care, folks. You've been listening to The Macro View. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.